I will be reading this morning from Esther 3, verses 1 to 6, Esther 5, verse 9 to 13, and 6, verses 1 to 11. And I apologize in advance. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you, so dis- why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it became repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, through Ahasuerus' kingdom. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them how all the king had honored him and promoted him in the rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. And Esther 6, 1 to 11. That night sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the, uh, the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act. The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for, the, for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man who who the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on a horse through the city square, and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ali. Uh, and you did a great job on the names. Uh, you did, especially, you had to say Ahasuerus over and over again. I would have just said Xerxes. Good for you, doing it. That was great. Um, before we uh, get to the message, I, I just want to also point out something I hadn't 
had a chance to tell Eric about, but uh, we want to congratulate uh, James and Carol Ann Fakeney, sitting right there in the middle, their oldest child and only daughter, Joelle, got married yesterday, and congratulations. And uh, I'm sure it was particularly um, emotional because it's their only girl. They have four boys and one girl, and now she's gone. Well, not gone, but you know what I mean. Like, not, now she's left the house. That's what I meant. Sorry. Anyhow, okay. Uh, we're back in the book of Esther this morning, and uh, don't worry if having heard the passages that we read, you went, what on earth is this all about? We will fill in the gaps for you as we go along, but just to catch you up, especially for guests and visitors this morning, we're doing four weeks through the book of Esther. It's a 10-book, 10, 10-chapter 10, book, and we're not going through each and every chapter or going through it verse by verse. What we're doing is, is we're sort of going through it from a bird's-eye view and looking at major themes throughout the book of Esther. And uh, so we started with the main theme, the most central theme, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the idea that God is actually never absent. The book of Esther is a strange book in that here's this book in the Bible and it uh, tells this great story and nowhere in that story do you get one mention of God. Uh, in fact, there's no real mention of any kind of religion really in the story anywhere and so it leaves one to wonder, how in the world did this get in the Bible at all? And the answer to that is, the lesson of Esther is that God is never absent, even in those circumstances in the most moments where it seems like He is most absent. In fact, He may be more directly at work in something when you, when you don't see Him directly at work than when you do. And I know that's counterintuitive, but when you read through the story you discover that there's all these incredibly minor coincidences that fit together so perfectly that it couldn't just be an accident. Someone had to be orchestrating the whole thing, and that someone obviously is God. That's the first major theme we looked at. Last week, we looked at the theme. Hmm, how do I describe this theme? I don't think I ever had a good description for the theme. Sorry. Uh, basically, it's this. God can use anyone to accomplish His purposes. And through grace, because God is a God of grace, He does use anyone to accomplish His purposes. Esther, in the first half of the story, is not a highly uh, enviable individual. She's not the kind of person that you would want to emulate, in fact. She's a bit of a sellout. But God through grace, uses her to accomplish His purposes, and that actually changes her to be the kind of person that you would want to emulate. And we discussed that last time. We can't talk about it again because we got to move on to this morning's subject matter. And this morning, we're finally getting introduced to the villain of the story, Haman. Haman is a bad dude. Haman, Haman is an evil guy. He is a very powerful person who wields that power to satisfy only his own needs and to oppress those who oppose him. And the theme for this morning that we're going to look at is, is, is the theme of how pride is an incredibly deadly characteristic. 
and we're going to look at it through the character that is Haman. Because in all the Bible, in all of Scripture, probably Haman is the, the best example of the deadliness of pride. Many of you, whether you're a Christian or not, you have heard the phrase, pride goes before destruction. That's from Proverbs 16. You've probably heard that. Well, Haman is the perfect example of how pride bego- or sorry, goes before destruction. According to Scripture, pride actually is at the root of all our problems. Pride is at the root of our individual problems in our, in our own lives, in our own issues, and pride is at the root of our collective problem as a human race. If you ask the Bible, what's wrong with the world? The answer generally would be sin, and that's true. But dig a little deeper and you discover that the answer specifically is the sin of pride. And that's one of the things, by the way, that makes Christianity unique among the world's religions and among the different systems of thought that are out there. Because if you ask a secular person, what's wrong with the world? You'll get all kinds of different answers. You'll get, um, you know, what's wrong with the world is uh, economic disparity and economic oppression. So the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer and the poor do not have access to the resources the rich have, the rich oppress the poor. That's the problem with the world. Or lack of education. There are Western countries that have excellent educational systems and they're uh, able to capitalize on that education and and, uh, improve their lives as a result. And there are other parts of the world that don't have that and therefore they're impoverished as a result. Or it might be corruption, political corruption. Uh, In Western countries, you have the rule of law and you have property rights and that kind of thing. In other places around the world, they don't have that. And that's the cause of all kinds of problems. You'll you'll hear all kinds of uh, uh, suggestions about what's wrong with the world. And there's a kernel of truth in all of those examples I gave you. Furthermore, go to the world religions and they'll give you different answers to what's wrong with the world. Buddhism, for example, will say what's wrong with the world is desire. Human beings have... Uh, desires that they pursue, and those desires end up getting in the way of their, uh, uh, of their contentment. And so the answer to that and deal with that is to quash those, those desires. And actually, there's, some, there's, some, there's a kernel of truth to that. There's some wisdom in that. But then comes along Christianity, and you ask a Christian, what's wrong with the world? And a Christian essentially says, I am. There was a uh, British newspaper about a century ago, that asked a number of very prominent intellectuals to answer this question in an op-ed piece. I think it was the London Times. The question was, what's wrong with the world? And you had, you had a myriad of answers given by these great erudite scholars from uh, throughout England who had responded to this question. And uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a brilliant Catholic scholar, he uh, was asked to give his answer, and he said, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world, I propose the following answer, I am. And that was his answer. Because the Christian tradition historically has said that we are the problem because we are infected. Human beings are infected, you could say, with this disease called pride. So, I'm going to make the case for you this morning that that is true. 
We're going to look at three things from the life of Haman. We're going to look at the nature of pride. We're going to look at the danger of pride. And hopefully we're also going to learn about the cure for pride. Those are the three things from, this pas- from these passages. Let's go. First of all, the nature of pride. We need to give a little bit of background. Remember, fill in the gaps uh, of the story for those who aren't familiar with it. Haman is a bureaucrat. He works in King Xerxes' government. And somewhere along the line, Haman, who is a very ambitious character and who has worked very hard in, his, in the government of Xerxes, he is granted a promotion. And this promotion is to basically the highest civil position in the land. He, what you could say is, is he becomes prime minister of the empire. And so he has the king's favor. You know, you don't get promoted to that position unless the king thinks you're pretty awesome. And so the king likes him very, very much. He has honor, he has power, and uh, the king, as a, as a token of demonstrating that he honors Haman, he, has an, he sends out an edict that says that everybody, when they're in Haman's presence, they need to bow before him to show him a certain measure of deference. And what's interesting is people don't just do it, they do it because they're told. Like, nobody has told you to, to, you know, if you were to meet the prime minister, to shake their hand and go, hello, sir, right? But probably you would just kind of naturally do that by virtue of their office. Regardless of your politics, don't think, well, I wouldn't do that because I don't like the prime minister. Come on, you probably would. Or a judge, right? Let's, let's use a judge. That's safer. It's not politically motivated. If you met a judge, you would probably say, you're, hello, your honor, And you would just do that, not because anybody told you to do that, but just because of the office. But here, Haman, Haman gets his honor because the king has told everybody you need to honor him, not just because people understand the office. And so that's already a little bit of a clue that there's something off with this guy, okay? So Haman has this position of power. Everybody's supposed to bow to him. One guy refuses to. It's another civil servant. His name is Mordecai. And every time Haman passes by Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't bow down. He just sits in his place. And I don't know if he looks up, looks down, looks him in the eye, glares at him. We don't know anything about that. All we know is, is he does not respond. And in, um, in chapter 5, so it's probably easiest to just follow along in the bulletin because the, the passages are all closely uh, aligned there. In chapter 5, beginning at verse 10, it says this, Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. So this is after Mordecai has refused to stand up in his presence and bow, okay? He goes home, he controls himself, he doesn't flip out in front of Mordecai. He goes home, and it says then in verse 11, Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, he says, um, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. So, so he rants and raves about how awesome he is and how popular he is. And then, here's the punchline in verse 13, still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. There's a lot of ways you can define pride. Here, I think, is an excellent way to define pride, and it's illustrated in this little passage about Haman. The core characteristic of pride is this, preoccupation with the self. 
pride is a preoccupation with the self. You have yourself on your brain all the time. You're always thinking about you. You're self-absorbed, okay? This is exactly what Haman was like. And this is why uh, in a summary statement about what pride is, and it's found on the front of your bulletin, uh, C.S. Lewis said, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. The ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon the self. That's Haman. And scripture would say, that's all pride. But it's not just preoccupation with the self. It's preoccupation with the self in relation to others. Remember, Haman is Xerxes' favorite, right? He's honored. He's powerful. He's got this this prestige and and all that kind of stuff. And yet, and yet, um, where am I here in my notes? I just lost it. Uh, And yet, when... Mordecai refuses to bow down before him. It infuriates him. The reason is, is because a person of pride, everything they do is meant to feed that ego. It's meant to, 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 to fit a, a certain uh, sense of self that you're trying to produce. And if one person in a thousand people doesn't play along with that goal, you begin to obsess on that, and, and, and it ruins the whole thing. So, so here's Haman, unable to take pleasure in the thought that Xerxes thinks he's great and thinks he's worth being the, the prime minister of the land. He's unable to take pleasure in the thought that Esther, Queen Esther, has invited him and him only to this banquet because one person refuses to get in line with his program, you see. It drives Haman nuts. And that's why Lewis's definition is so good, because you're always evaluating, when you're a proud person, you're always evaluating yourself against other people. You're always wondering, am I getting the recognition that I deserve for the things that I do? Am I being properly appreciated for who I am and, and what I've accomplished. Or you're wondering what people think of you when, uh, uh, and what you're wearing and, and what you're saying and what you're doing or the decisions that you make. That's what pride is. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound like pride to me. That sounds like insecurity. When you're always worrying about what others think of you and all that kind of stuff. But, but listen, yes, Pride very often means that you look down on others, that you, you have a superiority complex. It's true. You, you think that you're better than other people, etc. You're, you're always comparing yourself with them and, and ranking yourself because you believe that life is essentially like a ladder, right? You, you live life on, an, on a ladder. You're in one position on the ladder and everybody else in your sphere of influence or people that matter to you or whatever, they're all on the ladder as well and they're either above you or they're below you and you look up to those who are above you and you, of course, look down on those who are below you. You're smarter than them or you're richer than them or you're a harder worker than them or you're a more dedicated Christian than them. You're always comparing yourself to them. But listen, you can have an inferiority complex and still be full of pride as well. 
You can always think that people are smarter than you. You can think that people work harder than you. You can think that people are more committed to Jesus than you. You can think that you suck, frankly, and that you're no good and that you don't have anything to offer. And it sounds oh so humble, and it sounds like you've got something we call low self-esteem, but really, as David Pallison puts it, you're just suffering from inverted pride. Because you're still comparing yourself to others. The difference is, is that you're putting yourself on the bottom instead of on the top. But you're still self-absorbed, you see. It's still a preoccupation with the self. You're, st- you're just saying, I'm not who I should be. A proud, superior person says, I'm exactly who I should be. And you should be too, but you can't because you're not me. And a self-loathing person says, I should be different. I should be better. It's still preoccupation with the self, you see. This means, friends, probably that to some degree, every single one of us in this room suffers from pride. It's inescapable, and it, it's everywhere. It happens like that. You got a class full of grade two students, and they get their spelling test back, and one says, I got to be... And another one says, well, I got an A. And then the one in the back goes, well, I got a C. I'm not telling anybody what I got. Or they're on the, the, the field or on the sport, on the, in the, in the, they're on the playground. There we go. That wasn't so hard to say. They're on the playground and, 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 and one kid says, well, I'm the fastest. And the other one says, well, I'm the smartest. And the other one says, well, I can throw the ball the farthest. And the other one says, I can jump the highest or I'm the best at hockey. And we think to ourselves, well, that's just children and they need to learn to, to grow up, etc. <laughs> and then you become an adult and you do something great, helpful, let's say, for your church community. And the pastor, he doesn't come up to you and say, hey, thanks, great job, because he's an insensitive clod. And you think, why am I not getting the credit that I ought to get? Or you're hosting a get together with your friends. And you're like, I hope I have the right food and I hope I have the right drinks and I hope the house is clean enough. Come on, how many of us, we don't really clean until we're having people over. It's like our excuse to make our house look good again. Or how about this? You preach a sermon and a hundred people love it. And one person, maybe it's your wife, goes, meh. And you spend the rest of the day going, why does that one person not like what I said? We can't escape it. It's, it's, in our, it's, it's in our DNA, okay? That's the nature of pride, this preoccupation with ourselves. Okay, and pride, point two, is, is very, very dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. If you go back to the passages, you'll see uh, the first passage is from chapter 3. And in verses 5 and 6, it says this. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned that Mordecai's, uh, oh, sorry, and when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Haman wanted to kill more than just Mordecai. He wanted to kill all the Jews. And so 
he has this plan. And here's what his plan is. He goes to, he goes to the king and he says, Xerxes, there's an ethnic group in your empire that do not obey you. And they're dangerous. They could usurp your power. And so there needs to be something done with them. What I think we ought to do is we ought to wipe out this ethnic group and, and uh, deal with this danger because, before it becomes a really serious problem. And it'll be great because we can take all their money and we can fund uh, the treasury because the, the treasury, you know, remember he had this really long party? It kind of drained his funds. And so this will also build up the treasury as well. And of course the king says, go for it. Sounds like we should do that. But in the end, the plot fails. The guy Haman wants to kill is actually exalted and Haman is the one who is hung on his own gallows. Sorry, spoiler alert, if you don't know that. And the reason I, I tell you this is because pride ends in destruction. That's why Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what it says on the front of your bulletin. Why? Well, ever since Augustine, a great uh, theologian from the, uh, from the early age of the early church, theologians have, have seen and, and, and have argued that pride is not just one among many sins. Pride is very often the root of all the other sins. So you've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. The chief sin among the seven deadly sins, the most sinful and deadliest of the seven deadly sins, theologians have said, is pride. Because it's at the root of many of the other sins. Take, for example, anger. Let's, let's just look at a couple examples to see how this is true. You take, for example, anger. Where does anger and bitterness, where does that come from? Maybe you're the kind of person who is kind of resentful and you have a hard time. When someone wrongs you, you struggle to give that up. It's something that you hold on to. Maybe you know that about yourself. Maybe you're a bit of just a, an angry person. That it, underneath the surface, you feel that there's this, this, yeah, this anger that's constantly boiling. Where, do you, where does that come from? Someone wrongs you. It makes you angry. But where does that wrongness or where does that anger come from when someone wrongs you? Very often it comes from this. You say to yourself, I can't believe so-and-so did that to me. And really what you're saying is, is, I would never do that. You're so offended at the thought that someone has offended you in that way because deep down in your soul, you think to yourself, I would never do something like that. There's this sense of superiority inside of you. Who does Mordecai think he is? If I was standing in front of someone so great and so honored, I would certainly bow in deference the way that I'm supposed to. And this led Haman not just to have this personal animosity towards Mordecai, it led him to his racism because now he doesn't just see Mordecai as inferior to him, he sees what Mordecai represents as inferior to him. And now his pride is not just the root of his own personal hatred towards one individual. His pride is the root of a whole a social injustice being perpetrated against an entire ethnicity. And if you think, wow, come on, pastor, you're sort of stretching that, just read a little modern history. What do you think happened in the 1920s and the 1930s? Germany had a lot of problems, a lot of social problems, a lot of economic problems. They were frustrated because the middle class was not growing the way it was supposed to. And the, the pride of Germany had obviously been uh, 
been hurt very, very deeply by the defeat in World War I. And what did the Nazis come along and do? They said it's the Jews' fault. They're the problem. You see, the proud doesn't want to admit that they're the problem. They blame shift. And they say, well, it's got to be someone else's fault. They've got to find a, 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 a scapegoat. And that's the root of classism and racism and, and, and all kinds of problems. And that's exactly what Haman did with the Jews during the time of Esther. And of course, this happens especially when you look down on people, when you have that superiority form of pride. Because it, when you don't look down on people, when you can't look down on people, that can't flourish. Let, let me... Let me let me explain what I mean again with this problem of anger. When you are a person who understands that they are prone to a particular sin, you tend to be more tolerant of those who are also prone to that particular sin, don't you? You tend to be a little more sympathetic. You tend to, to, to cut them a little more slack because you know you've got, that, you've got that problem too. So if someone has a problem with an addiction and you've gone through addictions and you know how hard it is to quit the substance that that individual is struggling with, you tend to be a little more empathetic and a little more gentle with them. It doesn't mean that you agree with them or that you're going to condone their behavior or anything like that, but you, you, you are more, you are less quick to throw stones That's how it works. If you are the kind of person who thinks that you are incapable of, of committing that sin or, or it would, you would never do that, you'd be far harsher on other people, you see. Pride is sitting at the root of all kinds of sins. Let's take, very quickly, we can't do this forever, but let's take fear and anxiety. Some people deal heavily with fear and anxiety. They, their mind is constantly worrying, worrying and worrying and they're constantly nervous and anxious about things. There are certainly uh, medical components to fear and anxiety, just like there's medical components to all kinds of struggles that we have. But for sort of low-grade anxiety, very often what, it is, what it's rooted in is a, is a desire to want control. We want to control the outcome of our lives. Or, or if there's a particular issue in our life that we're concerned about, we want to control the outcome of that particular interview. We, we have this, as I said last week, I think, we're burdened, with the, 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 we're burdened with the need for divinity. We want to be God. We want to run the universe. And, and it's actually pride, the sense that we know how things ought to develop, is, is what's behind much of our worry and our anxiety. Okay, you're not convinced? Okay, what about lying? Let's just try lying. Everybody lies. Some people aren't anxious, some people are, but everybody's a liar at some point in their lives, right? People lie for lots of reasons, right? People lie to avoid trouble. They don't want to get in trouble or they don't want to stir up trouble, right? Do you like my hair? It's awesome. Do you, how do I look in this dress? You're gorgeous, right? You don't want to stir up trouble. Or people lie because they want to be people pleasers because they really want people to appreciate them, or people lie because they want to avoid embarrassment. But at the root of many lies is pride, because you don't want to be wrong, or you want to be loved. That's what a people pleaser is, a person who wants to be loved, or you want to be respected, right? 
That's how you avoid embarrassment. Because if you're embarrassed, then people disrespect you. And so the, the, the other quote from C.S. Lewis on the front of your bulletin says this, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is so deadly because it's at the root of so many of our problems. But it's also so deadly, not just because it's at the root, but because pride is unique among our sins in that pride is the one that is best at hiding itself. If you look at the passage uh, from chapter 6. In verses 5 and 6, it says this, The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, do... And he goes on and he says, This is what you should do. Haman just assumes that he's the guy, that obviously if there was someone the king wanted to honor, it would be me because of all my accomplishments. He's completely self-deceived. Why? Because pride hides itself as a sin. Think about this. When someone commits adultery, they know they're committing adultery. They're like, wait a minute, that's not my wife. It's pretty obvious. Or when they steal, they know they're stealing. They say, this $20,000 does not belong to me but I am taking it. Pride is unique. Pride is unique in that the, more, the, pr- the proud don't recognize their pride. Pri- <laughs> I can't even say it. The proud don't nest- recognize their pride. Pri- <laughs> Why is this so hard? The proud don't recognize that they're proud. Because, you know the story of the publican and the Pharisee, they go to the, to the wall to pray, or they go to the, sorry, not the wall. Uh, they go to the temple to pray. And the publican is standing far off, and he's just like, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, who, the Pharisees are proud, right? The Pharisee stands there, and he's praying away, and he looks over, and he says, Father, or God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that publican over there. And you're thinking to yourself, how can he not see? How can he not see that he's such a proud, pompous person? But have you ever met a really, really proud, pompous person? Isn't that what happens all the time? You walk away from the conversation and you think to yourself, how can that person not see that they're a proud, pompous person? Here we go again. A proud, pompous person. And the, the answer is... That's one of the characteristics of being proud and pompous is that you don't recognize your pomposity. Oh, good word. Now, put a couple things together. Pride is self-absorption that can be manifested both in a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, meaning basically all of us have issues of pride. Secondly, Pride is at the root of many of our problems, and so when we think we struggle with anger or we think we struggle with uh, gossip or we think we struggle with lust, probably pride is underneath that, and pride has a tendency to hide itself, and it's extremely difficult to uh, 
uproot and bring into the light and see it for what it is, aren't we in big trouble? If it's deceptive, particularly to the self, doesn't that mean that we're all in big trouble, struggling to, to find, uproot the pride that exists in our lives and, and overcome it? I hope your answer is yes. So we need a cure. What's the cure? Well, you know, before, let me just say, North Korea, USA. What's the problem between these two nations, between these two leaders? It's all about pride. It's all about making a name for yourself. It's all about saber-rattling and saying, who's bigger and stronger? Who's tougher? Anyhow, what's the cure for pride? Well, of course, you're going to say, and I'm going to say, humility, right? Humility is the opposite of pride, isn't it? Sure. James 4 says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That's absolutely true. But what does that mean? How is humility the cure for pride? And if it is, how in the world do we get it? Chapter 6 of the book of Esther records for us a great reversal. Essentially what happens is Haman, in an effort to exalt himself, plots to take down Mordecai and the Jews, right? And instead, the opposite happens. Lowly Mordecai is exalted and Haman is humiliated so that by the end of the passage we read in verse 11, Haman took the garments and the horse, he clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Like I don't know how much chutzpah he had when he had to cry that out. But you can just picture it, right? Like this is the guy he wanted dead and now he's honoring him. This is, this is what happens. It's a tremendous reversal. And in Scripture, that is the biblical pattern. When you try to exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And if you humble yourself, you will be raised up. Okay, but what is that humility? What does that mean? What is the opposite of pride? Oftentimes, people think of humility as thinking less of yourself. Like, well, you know, a kid who's really fast is supposed to say, well, I'm not fast, right? Like Usain Bolt, when he's on field day with his classmates back in Jamaica when he was 12 years old and he was blowing the doors off of everybody, he was supposed to be humble and say, well, no, I'm not actually that fast. I'm sure that there's a cheetah out there that's faster than me. That's what we think true humility is, but it's not. If pride is self-absorption and preoccupation with the self, true humility, biblical humility, it's not thinking about yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Did you catch that? It's not that you, you think lowly of yourself. It's that you just don't think of yourself all that much. It's if it's self-preoccupation and self-absorption to be proud, then it's self-forgetfulness to be humble, you see. Have you ever noticed that the, the kid who tries really, really hard to be cool and fit in usually doesn't? Or the artist that tries really, really hard to be original doesn't seem all that original? In Christ, see, you have a picture of ultimate humility. 
Some of you maybe are familiar with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's known as the Great Christ Hymn, and I encourage you to go home and read it today. And in that beautiful hymn, it says that Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, here was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, existing before the foundation of wor the world in all glory, in all majesty, who had equality with God, but he didn't think it was something he had to grasp at and clutch at. He wasn't preoccupied it, with it. It says that he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus is the picture of true humility. He humbled himself, not thinking of himself, but thinking of his Father's glory. When the, when the Father was hatching this plan to save you and I from our prideful, preoccupied selves, he said, who will go? And Jesus, his own son, stood up at his throne and said, I will go. I will clothe myself in humility. I will walk among them. I will be a homeless wanderer, and I will allow them to take me and nail me to a cross, ashamed and exposed and naked and I will bear your wrath for their sin and their preoccupation on my soul. I will do all that for your glory, not for my own. And you know what Philippians says? Therefore, because he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He raised him. I don't, it's hard to explain, but he, he didn't just raise him back up. He just, he raised him like even higher. Now when you look at him doing that for you, what happens is, when you are smitten by that story, what happens is, is you actually, you begin to forget yourself. You begin to, to worry about yourself less because you're lost. You're just lost in what's called wonder, love, and grace. You're lost in His majesty and His glory and you're not thinking about you anymore because you're just too transfixed by Him. Then all of a sudden, you're off the ladder. You're not looking up or down anymore. You're not even on it. That's true humility. And the cure for our pride that we might be truly humble is our Savior. The one who said that he would lose his glory so that we could share in it one day. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who heals us of our pride. <laughs> who knew it was so dangerous? But it is. Father, we pray that you will enable us to be lost in the humility of our Savior what he was willing to do for us so that we might truly be humble and trust that your promises are true. You say in the book of James that if we would humble ourselves in your sight, you would lift us up. Oh, Father.
Do this, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.